when I was writing on Wattpad, I just, I just felt like, oh, I wrote this really dramatic poem about missing my friend who moved away, and people are responding to it and saying, oh, this reminds me of like the death of a family member or you know my relationship with X person. I was like, oh wow, all these strangers like from the internet have feelings about just a very personal experience that I was having and I don't know I think I like caught the bug (laughs) the the, like early not early internet but like you know well kind of like early internet bug of like oh I'm communicating with so many more people than just like the people at my tiny school that I go to and like art can be something beyond like a school assignment it can mean something to many different people beyond myself so I think that was kind of the start of my needing to share and, uh, you know, create work. I'm Jalen Walls. My pronouns are they, them. I'm a member of the 2021 cohort and a third-year PhD student in the art history department. I study contemporary Black portraiture and its relation to early Renaissance. I imagine a world where kids of color can see themselves represented across art forms. Today, we're speaking with Jalen Walls, a PhD candidate in art history. During our conversation, you'll hear Jalen's experience exploring creative writing and how it led to an interest in curation, developing a space to discuss contemporary artists of color, breaking barriers between people in art, and so much more. Welcome to the Imagine a World podcast from Knight Hennessy Scholars. We are here to give you a glimpse into the Knight Hennessy Scholar community of graduate students spanning all seven Stanford schools, including business, education, engineering, humanities, law, medicine, and sustainability. In each episode, we talk with scholars about the world they imagine and what they are doing to bring it to life. Jalen, we really appreciate you joining us today for this episode of Imagine a World. Thanks for using your time and for being willing to to share a bit of your of your really cool and really interesting story with us. I've really enjoyed our conversations we've had over the past couple of years about like our shared perspective on art, and uh, excited for you to be able to to share that with the broader world. Thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting. How's the week been? Are you getting things kind of wrapped up from the, for the quarter at this point? Do you have finals? Yeah. I gave three presentations this week, <gasps> and now I have to come up with the papers related to those presentations. And so I'm writing a paper on a film called The African Desperate by the artist Martin Sims. And it's basically a satirical look at the MFA art school experience oh, wow. for a black woman. <laughs> okay. Um, wow. Topical. I would say it's like a very triggering film oh, really? yeah. <laughs> personally, S- not okay. but um, I'm really excited to write about it and how nature factors into the sort of cinematic landscape. Okay. Have you seen any of Rowan Ings' films? Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. I love her so much. Oh yeah. yeah. Her film was really good. Yeah. So yeah. Rowan Ings in, my, in the 2021 Night Hennessy cohort, dear friend of mine and a documentary filmmaker. Yeah. She studied the whales, whales. and yeah, how yeah. they yes. yeah. explode the whales. Yeah, no, exactly <laughs> right. So all these whales that, that die along shipping channels in the Bay Area. And so the film was called Sentinels. And I did the sound design really? for it. So all the sound was, you know, audio from whales sort of messed up beyond recognition. And then a little bit of whale song in there just to give the people what they want. <laughs> That's the Night Hennessy way. That's the, the, Night col- Hennessy the way. collaboration. Yeah, it is. Yeah. With a case. <laughs> collaboration. Between you, Karishma, I mean, we're, we're getting a lot of the arts here. Yeah. Arts, yeah. yeah. And which I feel is probably a little bit different than what people expect. 
from mm-hmm. Stanford. I probably sure they would probably have thought we get the engineers in here. Which don't worry, we have guys. Them. Don't worry. We yeah, have them. And we love them. We, you know, we got y'all. You'll be here. You're on the docket. But it's really good to have folks from arts world here. It is a skewed perspective, though. We are the minority. Yeah, <laughs> in the this is true. Community. This is true. Yeah, yeah. Karishma brought that up, and she also mentioned how helpful even being in an interdisciplinary space can be, mm-hmm. even though mm-hmm. being in the minority from a topical perspective is a reality at the moment. So glad to have you here with us. And before we talk about your imaginal world statement, which is very thought provoking and is even reminding me of Kay's imaginal world statement from the first episode, but again, we'll get to that. Let's talk about the world you're born into and the world you've experienced thus far. So Jalen, where are you from and what was your journey here? I'm from Houston, Texas. H-Town? Yes, H-Town. Get down. (laughs) I was born and raised there. Um, I was born in 1998. Amazing year. (laughs) Thank you. A lot of good movies, a lot of Disney and Pixar films were really popping off at the time. Mm. Golden (laughs) era. You mentioned movies and Pixar. Yeah. What are the ones that come to mind for you when you think about that year? I don't know that year specifically, but growing up, Toy Story was the Mm -hmm. most important film to me. I think the scene where Woody has to get fixed up by the toy repairman oh, yeah. pretty much yeah, yeah. defined who I was as a person. Yes. Right? I was like, yeah. something about the cotton getting sewn in yeah. was like so important <laughs> to me. Visual ASMR. Yeah. Indeed. Early, or they were so avant-garde. <laughs> the Lion King. I was homeschooled, actually. Not by my parents, but we called it homeschooling because I had like six classmates. And whoever did the best, both, you know, socially and also like in academics early in the day, got to pick the movie that we watched during lunch. And I was unfortunately always doing wonderfully. (laughs) (laughs) And I would pick The Lion King every single time until one day this girl, Kiana, goes, we're not watching The Lion King, (laughs) Jalen. Wow. (laughs) I don't care. Strongly worded, Kiana. Literally. So I had to repress my love, but Mm. yeah, The Lion King was very important to me. Being homeschooled was a little bit strange, but I didn't know that it was strange. I feel like I got to embrace my love for writing, my love for reading very passionately, very intensely early on because there just were not a lot of students. And so my teacher could sort of see Mrs. Bailey, shout out. Shout out to the teachers. That I had just a big love for like words, vocabulary, reading, storytelling, and she just kind of let me do it. <laughs> she was like, um, yeah, like you got the math covered, like <laughs> just sit in the corner and read. Uh, so then when I went to public school in the third grade, I found myself kind of confused as to why I couldn't read all day and like do whatever I wanted. Sure. But I still like carried that love for literature with me home and and art and just being creative in any way that I could. Um, My parents really embraced that when I was growing up. I feel like they kind of let me explore whatever I wanted to do if they had the means to let me do so. Um, I was definitely a kid who did everything. My sister and I, we were in gymnastics, ballet, thank you, flute, cello. I played cello growing up. I did karate. I just, like, (laughs) we were uh, all over the place. Um, I think my parents maybe didn't have the opportunity to, like, branch out and do all these things when they were kids. And so they kind of just let me and my siblings do whatever occurred to us, (laughs) which is really nice. 
Around middle school, I started writing much more uh, intentionally. I don't know if y'all know what Wattpad is. Um, a what? Watt, a Wattpad. Wattpad. Like as in, as it, in the measure of energy? Like no. Watt, like as in, or whatever. <laughs> well, it is spelled W-A-T-T. Okay. Okay, um, run, run us through the, uh, Wattpad. <laughs> the, the Wattpad. For, I had a Leap Pad. I had a Leap Pad. I had a Leap Pad, too. You know what I'm saying? Yes. I, I used to tear Leap Pad up. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, check, out, check out the cartridges from the library. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Man. Absolutely. Nostalgia. Sorry. I also had a Leap Pad. Okay, yeah. Wattpad, so, Wattpad. No, Wattpad was this website. Uh, W-A-T-T-P-A-D. Uh, it was a website where you could just upload uh, stories, poetry. It was a lot of fan fiction. It was right around like 2011. So it was a lot of like Harry Styles is making out with another member of One Direction. Right, <laughs> like, sure. you know, and you could rise in the ranks of Wattpad and have followers and things like that. And I started uploading really melodramatic poetry <laughs> to <laughs> Wattpad, and I became, you know, what was called a quote unquote Wattpad famous. Okay. Um, okay. I had like several thousands of followers <laughs> like leave comments on my poems and wow. things. And so I thought I was like, I was like, I can't believe I'm Maya Angelou. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is crazy. I'm 12. Did you find that the response to your poems made you write differently? No, no. I was. I've been talking a lot about this actually in the different art history courses that I'm taking okay. about um, if artists can consider themselves artists if they don't share their work with anyone. Oh. Yes. If they're writing for themselves, if they're painting for themselves, are they an artist? And I think the answer is like very much yes. And also, I think that writing for yourself, creating work for yourself, is like also a very queer practice. But I think there's something about like trying to develop your work in solitude and having a sort of self-contained practice that isn't performative or responding to something outside of yourself. When I was writing on Wattpad, I just, I just felt like, oh, I wrote this really dramatic poem about, you know, missing my friend who moved away and people are responding to it and saying, oh, this reminds me of like the death of a family member or, you know, my relationship with X person. I was like, oh, wow, all these strangers like from the internet have feelings about just a very personal experience that I was having. And I don't know, I think I like caught the bug, <laughs> the, the like early, not early internet, but like, you know, well, kind of like early yeah, internet sure. bug of like, oh, I'm communicating with so many more people than just like the people at my tiny school that I go to. Um and like art can be something beyond like a school assignment. It can it can mean something to many different people uh, beyond myself. So I think that was kind of the start of my needing to share yeah. and you know create work. So it's funny you mentioned being homeschooled because we have a connection there. I was I was homeschooled. Really? From, really? Yeah, I was I was homeschooled from first grade until high school graduation. Honestly. Really? Yeah, I actually said so the whole I had time. No idea. Yeah. You were homeschooled for a relatively short period of time, but nevertheless, a pretty transformational time, like right. early education. Did homeschooling affect the way that you found community or searched for community? I think so. I feel like my homeschool teacher taught me very early on, like, oh, you're weird, but that's so cool. You know? like, <laughs> yeah, sure. You're really into this thing, but I think that's special and interesting and you should stick with that. And so when I went to, you know, regular school, public yeah. school, um, I was kind of able to stand in that conviction that like, yeah. 
wanting to, you know, read through the dictionary during lunch was like cool and interesting and not like weird and isolating and like geeky. Or even if it was like, I didn't care because I could feel that I was like learning new things. And I was taught that learning new things is like the way to move about the world in a meaningful way, you know? I think I just, you know, sort of gravitated towards like other weirdos, especially, I mean, I went into my school. It was a school where you could learn how to play an instrument at the elementary school. So I was with a bunch of cello players, of course, you know, nerds. (laughs) So I just sort of pulled towards them, people who were into like theater um, and the arts and writing. And I went into public school and was like, okay, so at my old school, I used to like put on plays. Do you guys want to be in my plays? (laughs) You know, it's like, that was a weird thing to do. Yeah. (laughs) But I just, I sensed that it was fun and I could pull people into my fun (laughs) or like what I thought was fun. Um, So I'm, I'm extremely grateful for my homeschool experience. I think I'd be like a completely different person. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same way. A lot of what you said resonates with me. I think the freedom that it gave me to sort of pursue passion projects and the way in the way that it sort of taught you to do that gave me like a depth of experience and so much time to put into to, to guitar playing and music for me. And as I brought in my social circle and made more friends in different, you know, walks of life, music or otherwise, there was just this fundamental sense of, oh, this is a thing that I love and I should spend time doing it, regardless of what other folks around me are doing. So like talking about sort of standing in that conviction, yeah, that really resonated with me. Talking about your interest in cajoling people to join your plays. It also reminds me of what Karisha mentioned in our last episode around how she was dancing all the time and sort of dancing was sort of the entryway into art for her and storytelling. And as a result of that comparison, I'm wondering for you, how do we get then to like art and art history and and just pursuing that as a formal education right. undergrad through grad school? From what pad to the stage? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when it was time to go to high school, I applied to the high school for the performing and visual arts in Houston, which was is a well-known performing arts school. It's kind of selective. So they had just started a few years prior the creative writing program. Mm. And, you know, I was getting encouragement from my teachers in middle school. Um, you know, oh, you're a pretty good writer. You could try to do this. So I applied. I got in. And I just started focusing really intensely on writing. You know, it became my main thing. I wanted to be a screenwriter. The setup of the school is that you would work on your art area for three hours a day and then take regular classes for the rest of the day. So I was doing a lot of writing. Um, at the same time, the visual arts kids at my school kept talking about how they were on this thing called a teen council at the Contemporary Arts Museum in Houston. I was like, oh, all the art kids are kind of weird. They seem like a lot of them are queer. Like, I want to hang out with them. So I applied to be on the teen council at the Contemporary Arts Museum in Houston as a writer. I wanted to write for their Tumblr blog. I was like, I don't know anything about art. Oh, Tumblr. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Might need to explain that term. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, For their their Tumblr blog. Sure. I was like, yeah, I don't know anything about art or art history, but I can definitely write. Um, And it'll give me opportunity to hang out with these, like, weird art kids that I think might be, like, my group, you know, Mm. my community. So I started doing that. And at the same time, the... Uh, the museum was run by a curator, Valerie Cassell, and she was sort of 
like a game changer for the Houston art scene because she was putting on all of these fascinating, radical exhibitions centering Black artists, queer artists. She kind of turned the whole museum around from where it was previously. She was kind of like young and like hip and like had this, you know, just really cool approach to curation. So at the same time, she was putting on all these great shows in the teen council of the museum was meant to come up with teen shows, meet the artists that were putting on shows in the museum. It's just an opportunity for students to get, you know, museum-related experience. Okay. Sort of attract a younger demographic to the museum. Right. Because museums are, you know, they're very intimidating, like kind of typically white spaces. And so teen councils, which are something that have like popped up all across the U.S. in different big museums, are meant to sort of bring in people that otherwise maybe wouldn't have an interest in art and art history. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm writing for the Tumblr blog. I'm having fun. But I'm also finding that all of these artists and their works are really interesting and, like, are sort of pulling me towards them, especially as I'm writing about them and meeting them and interviewing them for the Tumblr. And I kind of just fell in love. I completely fell in love with the idea of curation, art history, And a lot of it did involve writing, so it felt, you know, kind of close enough to what I was already interested in. So that's how I got into art history. And I realized, you know, I started talking to uh, Valerie. She became kind of a mentor to me. And uh, I realized if I'm going to get into this, I have to study art history in college. And then after that, if I want to be a curator, head curator, I'm going to need a PhD, my goodness. (laughs) so, yeah, I ended up at the University of Texas at Austin in the art history department. Hook'em horns. Oh, yeah, hook'em uh, horns. Obligatory horns down from LSU. Oh, Sorry. my goodness. I'm from Bama, so, you know, we might see all in the playoff. We might see all in the championship, so, you know, we'll. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I went there with my best friend um, and had a rip-roaring time, and I just got so deep into art history, but I still had this sort of love of creative writing, the less academic, scholarly, you know, create a citation type of writing. Um, So I just, I kept that in my back pocket for a little bit, and then maybe we could talk about where that led to. (laughs) Yeah, happy to talk about where that led to, because I think just in knowing a little bit about your story and just how you navigated the space on the teen council was that the start of art in color in a way i started art in color my second year of college so i mean indirectly yes yeah, but yeah. um second second year of college yeah for the folks out there what is art in color art in color is a youtube channel that i have where i discuss contemporary artists of color um, and their practice and different scandals in art history and <laughs> just try to communicate in like an accessible way uh, in a digital space about about art and art history and just try to pull people in who maybe otherwise wouldn't encounter um, this type of work. When I got to Stanford, I made so many videos my first year. I was mm-hmm. feeling really motivated. I would like, Night Hennessy helped me out a lot um, in terms of like connecting me to someone to edit my videos and like funding, things like that. And then my second year, things got really intense. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, grad school is hard. Um, and I took a hiatus. And right now I'm kind of on the hiatus. But I have started talking again to my Night Hennessy friends and cohort and everything. And I'm going to re relaunch the channel. Yeah. You just, because you pitched it at the Keystone Ideas Festival, which, and 
don't know if you knew this, Taylor, at the time, Jalen said that, I think you said he had 5,000 subscribers in doing our research for the episode. You're almost at 10K. Or yeah. maybe you're maybe trying to get an additional, additional 5K, but it's no small following for, for Jalen on yeah. on Art and Color. And we would encourage folks who are listening to, to check that out. We'll include that in the show notes. And I feel as if something you said about doing Art and Color, I've only taken like a survey of visual arts class and I was a senior year of college, but I felt very empowered because of that class to have language to describe like, what was going on in a piece and like using vocabulary to say, oh, like, I don't know, rhythm or something like that. And, like, oh, to, composition. Yeah, or something like that. Or just to be able to discuss art in a way. And I think something that you said, it might not have been art and color, but it's somewhere in the research we did on you where I remember you saying that art like belongs to people. Mm-hmm. And I found that particularly interesting because even as I was watching more of your videos, it sort of continue to ground me in like what the artist is trying to do in terms of like letting you know about who they are and like how can you engage with that. And as you mentioned earlier about just art and museums being places that are traditionally white and maybe highbrow, how do you think about bringing people into a conversation that they've always been a part of but have never been aware of their need to participate? Yeah, absolutely. I think there is this idea that Museums are a space where you can see very large, you know, Renaissance type paintings of like beautiful white women, like philosophers and things like that. Um, Or, you know, people in war. Lots of Um, boats. Yes, lots of boats. Lots of landscapes. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) But the truth is, there has been such a huge movement recently to try to engage with artists of color people who are creating work about, you know, their experiences, their own identities. And that's an attempt to bring in people who otherwise wouldn't visit museums. I think, you know, sounds like me. Art does belong to people. Um, You know, museums are spaces where art is brought out of storage in order to have engagement with a public. It's not like you know, when someone buys a work of art and then it either goes in their bedroom or it goes into storage so that it can accrue value, which um, we can't get into that. <laughs> we can't get into that. Oh, I kind of <laughs> wish it was a video podcast because that, that was like probably the hardest hour I'll see in a minute. <laughs> it was so funny. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, I, saw the, I saw the whites of your eyes there. I'm Gina. so sorry. I could feel my face doing that. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm, anyway. <laughs> but I think to tear down the illusion that there is some sort of barrier between people, especially people of color and art, I think is one of the main points of the the ethos of my personhood, essentially. I just am so drawn to artists that are creating meaningful, often extremely personal work about who they are, typically as people of color and allowing people to bear witness to these works um, and engage with them in a meaningful way, not only for themselves, but also for this sense of community um, and understanding that there is a certain level of universality to a lot of the struggles that, you know, an individual may have. You spoke a little bit about getting to Stanford and being very productive mm-hmm. and then moving into a space where sort of the, the, the challenge mm-hmm. of Stanford, the challenge of grad school and life and, you know, as a grad student, mm-hmm. I think that's something that every grad student experiences, something just like the 
the reality of the, the responsibility and the, and the level of work that it takes to make it through. How have you felt about confronting that challenge of life as a grad student over time? I definitely have been having like a more deep internal conversation about, you know, my purpose here, mm-hmm. how I have moved from my original, you know, intentions and where I am right now. Yeah. I'm in a course, an art history methods course with a professor, um, Marcy Kwan, and she asked us to do an intellectual biography, essentially stating why we study what we study. Mm-hmm. And I read my admissions essay in, to reflect so that I could complete the assignment. And I just felt so nostalgic, but also like, oh, they're so naive. <laughs> like, what a what a charming person this this Jalen Walls of 2021 was. <laughs> I am currently in this moment where I am aware that my passion lies in connecting people to art and making, you know, meaningful threads between the quote-unquote art world and the public. Simultaneously, I think trying to bridge the gap between my like previous passion for that and my ability to have action towards that, and then my present moment, being fully aware that there are limits to this, is kind of where I am right now. <laughs> yeah, I think just, yeah, the what you said, the reality of the situation yeah. of like, oh, I'm just one person. And even having access to all of these wonderful, like Stanford connections and blah, 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 there are limitations to my ability to like change the world for the better. But I, I need to hold on to the idealism yeah. of, you know, first year Jalen. And in order to drive myself towards towards making even marginal amount of change. Sure. And marginal change is, is more than no change. Speaking of idealism, I do want to make sure we get time to talk about your imaginal world statement, speaking of ideas. And I think sometimes it's interesting because I think a lot of times when people think about art history and art, they think about adults. And I feel as if what you talked about, even sort of like you being, I think I remember you saying you got dropped off in, at museums as a kid with your siblings, with your parents, and sort of how important children are when it comes to our understanding of anything in the world. I mean, I have a daughter right now, so that's I'm very much so like realizing, like, oh, she's like having to learn all this stuff through me and this making me anyway don't want to get into the whole thing about that but we'd love to hear you talk more about that imaginal world statement why the focus on children and kids and we know that you just published a book yes just published a book love the publishing of a book and talk a bit about how even some of that book relates to to the importance of children and seeing themselves in, in different in whatever ways vr forms yeah i think a lot of these ideas around who is supposed to enter museums, who is supposed to engage with art, who is art for, are built when you're very young. Mm. I think, you know, that's why there's so much effort on the part of major museums across the country, I mean, even internationally, to bring in kids because the ways in which we engage with art are determined very young. I mean, just like anything else, art is a really sort of exciting thing to engage with. Museums are really cool spaces. They're often in these really fantastical buildings, huge facades, amazing colors everywhere. And so if you're a kid and you come into this space, 
and you see like, oh, there's works that a hundred times the size of me. And maybe there's like a person of color in the painting or like there's a photograph of all these different ways to be a person in the world or, you know, landscapes that I've never seen before. Then there's an inherent interest and inherent excitement in engaging with the space. You know, there's a field called museum education. Most museums have an education department that are structured to engage with children specifically because museums are, you know, not at their core, you know, for children, but they function as really exciting spaces for children. Um, And so I think to have this foundation of accessibility, excitement, direct engagement um, with young people, especially thinking about like elementary age school children, um, is probably the only way that museums are going to survive. I mean, museums are supported internally, structurally by, you know, very wealthy, older people. The volunteers that work there are retired people who have time to walk around for free and talk about art. They are funded by people who have a lot of money and have some sort of appreciation for art. But what happens when those people move on? All you have are young audiences and, you know, younger curators who are trying to make sure that the legacy of a museum space continues on and on. And how do you do that? By engaging with children and making sure that there is a foundation of interest and not one of fear or disinterest from the very beginning. I mean, beyond the sort of institutional engagement in order for the legacy to continue, I just think some of the like most interesting thinkers are yeah. children, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You can talk with a bunch of scholars about a painting all day long, and then, it, you know, you do like a museum tour with a kid, and they're like, why is this color like this? And you're like, oh my God, I'd never noticed that. No one brought that up. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> So, I mean, I've had that experience dozens of times working in museums, doing tours, um, doing curatorial work, where it's just like, oh, that fourth grader had like (laughs) a much more meaningful engagement with this work than anybody I've talked to so far. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you know, the creative grounds are with the children. Are you optimistic about the ability to bring in this new generation, like that the institutions the folks in power, and also the younger curators who are creating these spaces to be more available and welcoming. Are you optimistic about their ability to bring a younger generation in? Yes and no. I'm optimistic that individual curators have passion, that museum educators have passion and interest in engaging with kids. I'm optimistic that kids will always and forever bring their creativity into institutional spaces. Simultaneously, I am a little pessimistic about the powers that be Mm, funneling finances into accessibility for kids to see museums, to engage with art. Um, You know, it might not be as exciting to say we can fund, you know, museum visits for five different elementary schools. You know, that's not as cool as like, what if we paid $2 million for another Van Gogh, you know? So uh, the answer is yes and no. 
so to that point about yes and no, what are the things that need to happen to make a world where the yes is more emphatic and the no is less pronounced? Because I think, for example, like the Mellon Foundation, I think recently announced they're going to donate a half a billion dollars to monuments around the U.S. And I think that's a very interesting approach to an interesting sort of option C when it comes to like the converse, the national conversation of monuments, right? Like at least being from the South. Do you count Texas as being part of the South? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's okay. a fun thing about this. All three of us are from the South. Yeah, we are oh, all yes. Southern. Uh, yeah. No accents. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's sort of the conversation around Confederate soldiers and, yes. and, and monuments. And there seemed to be an option A, you keep them because people believe the Confederate. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, <laughs> or option B, you tear them down for the reasons that are publicly documented. And I feel like what the Mellon Foundation is doing is like a nice option C of what if we just built more. And to balance the narratives that people have. So anyway, that's, I guess, a a side example to talk about sort of what would it look like for you and what would you need to see or feel like would need to happen for, for some of that optimism to be more robust? Yeah, I think just having, you know, a lot of museums are run by boards. Boards are often just full of very wealthy people who do a lot of decision making about uh, what a museum can and can't do. I think having boards, having directors engage directly with curators who have mm. exciting ideas okay. would just change museums so much. I think there's, um, I don't know, is this like shop talk? Like <laughs> there's just yeah, like yeah. a delineation, sorry, a separation in power structures in who is able to actually directly engage with and communicate with curators and the public and museum education people. It's like, why are the people that are giving the museum money not talking to the people that are putting on shows in the museum, you know? And so I think it's cool and exciting to have an announcement like 25-year-old black female curator put into the insert whatever huge museum. But it's like, what does that actually mean? Are that person's ideas being heard and are they being executed in a meaningful way beyond a title? or beyond just reifying the institutional work that's already existed before them. And so, um, yeah, I think just direct engagement between like financial people and creative people that are engaging with the public would, would be the emphatic yes. But of course, that's individual case, individual case, individual case from museum to museum. And so I think that goes back to like triumphing in the marginal successes. Yeah. And sort of turning from this discussion around the around the systematic to to you as an individual and your 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 creative pursuits. I know Billy mentioned earlier you've written a book. Would you talk a little bit about your book, about the process of writing it, and maybe a bit about how it's connected to your research at Stanford, if at all? Yeah, definitely. As I mentioned earlier, I always engage with creative writing as just like as my outlet. I love storytelling. I love lying, (laughs) (laughs) making things up. And so when I was in high school, I was trying to, middle school, high school, I was really trying to figure out my identity, who I was, what was going on with me. Sure. And my way to do this was reading books and watching movies. I loved watching movies, especially about queer people, gay people. And so I wrote this research paper my senior year of high school, basically just looking at queer stereotypes in American movies from the 60s to the present, which the present at that point would have been like 20s, 
16, 17. And, you know, the results were pretty bad. I would say, I would say the stereotypes were not great. And through writing that paper, I kind of wanted to create like a solution, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so my response to that research paper was to write a film kind of against stereotypes. So it's like a very clear teen film dismissing all the negative stereotypes instead embracing like this more organic, diverse narrative centered around people that were just basically like my friends. You know, I was building characters based off of people that I knew around me. And then I just had like a movie script yeah. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't going to make a movie. <laughs> so I kind of just let it uh, gather dust for a couple of years, uh, the script. And then when I was in college, my friend, a couple of friends actually were like, that script was interesting. You should do something with that. And I agreed and I adapted it to a novel manuscript titled The Queer Girl is Going to Be Okay. And I pitched it to some agents, got an agent. Shout out to Garrett. Thank you. Garrett. Garrett, (laughs) um, who's up in Washington. And then he pitched it to publishers. And I got my manuscript accepted to a publisher, Levine Carrito. That is a publisher of children's books, primarily working with queer and native authors and queer native stories. And... And then my book got published and it came yeah. out wow. uh, a few weeks ago, November 21st. Wow. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank yeah. you. The story follows three girls, um, Dawn, Georgia, and Edie. They're all living in Houston, Texas, which is where I'm from. And Dawn is trying to make a documentary about queer love so that she can get a scholarship to the radio, television, and film program at UT Austin. <laughs> so the story is very close to my heart and very much follows my path towards um college with you know several twists and sure. things made up as well but some autobiographical themes clearly. yes yeah. autobiographical themes and yeah it's just about you know how friendship is a kind of love and how making like deep connections platonic or otherwise mm-hmm. when you're a teenager can sort of lead you towards your identity and and help you survive as a queer kid in the south that sounds so beautiful i'm excited to to read it myself and What's the best way for a listener of this podcast to get access to or purchase this book? If you want to support a local indie bookstore, that's a pretty good option. I have tried my darndest to get it stocked across California, and it's also in indie bookstores like pretty much everywhere in the U.S. But if that is too much or like maybe you have some struggles finding it, it's also available online, mm-hmm. um, Bookshop org amazon if you want to do that yeah. <laughs> um uh indie bound there's also an audiobook okay which is available are you reading the audiobook yeah i have a, a professional oh, okay, okay. <laughs> oh my goodness but you are, we already said you're a professional yeah you already are. i see okay. you speaking to I'm not this right, right now. now do you want to do it right now do you want oh, to do it <laughs> it's already done okay. um, a really wonderful audio narrator named tamika um, did it. She's an artiste of the voice. Yeah, that's available on Audible and all the other audio book sites. Um, yeah. That's oh, so Barnes exciting. Noble okay. online. Online. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You okay, can okay. order it. You can order it into Barnes and Noble. Okay. But yeah, I'm still trying to figure that out. Okay. That's so beautiful to me that it that where it started to what it became. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure because of how much time it took and how much experience you gained over the time that you were writing it and the different forms that it took, I'm sure that like 
all of that changed the story as time went on. So I'm sure it's very cathartic for you to have this out into the world, but it also sounds like in your description of the process of getting it published, you're really interacting with this with this area of commerce. You know, you've been in the very public facing museum side of art. You've been in the in the academy with art. How did you feel about interacting with this realm of commerce and getting your book out to people? And as as a product to some degree, how do you feel about that? It's very strange because the early part of publishing a book, you know, when you get out the advanced what are called advanced reader copies mm-hmm. to people, those are not going to teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> those are going to like professional book reviewers yeah. who are, you know, adults and so it's just strange to like the very, you know, I've been sort of in my little corner working on this book for yeah. such a long time. And then the second I put it out into the world in any capacity, I am getting feedback from like adults. Yes. But the most meaningful element of, I guess, the commercial aspect has been having it in libraries and yeah, getting right. feedback online from teenagers who are like able to engage with the book um, for free because, mm-hmm. you know, libraries love that. Um, oh, you can also get the book from like, I think it's available in like 200 libraries across the U.S. Oh, but you that's just amazing. Check online, see yeah. if your library has it. But yeah, I'm the most gratifying part of this has been hearing what like young queer people think about it. I really, if I'm being honest, just don't care what any adult has to say about this book because I didn't write it for them. I, I wrote it for, you know, young kids and also indirectly some younger version of myself, I'm sure. I'm excited like as time goes on to hear back from more and more teens. And actually today I have an event at the San Francisco Public Library. Um, they have like a queer social hour for teenagers and I'm going to be stopping by and signing books and, and meeting with kids. So this is like perfect. It's exactly what I wanted when I initially wrote the book. Speaking of timing, I know we're coming up on time now. I'm going to ask a couple of really quick questions before we before we wrap, wrap this conversation. Well, one, I'm going to follow really quickly on Taylor's point around engaging with commerce and art. And I feel as if the common thread between whether you're writing a book, whether you're curating an exhibit at a museum, or whether you're being a PhD student, and I think the common element across all those things is critique. There's mm. always critique. There's always someone giving you some form of feedback. At the business school, they always say feedback is a gift. And I think that most times it's true. Well, yeah, I mean, a gift is a strong word. depends on your perspective. And I've heard some of you people on Art and Color talk about like critique and like, how do you deal with critique? And I'm wondering how do you, what things do you do to, to build in your comfortability with being critiqued? And how do you keep that from making you cynical? Because I think that's, that's the thing I continue to keep coming back to being in the, being in the academy in some way, shape or form is, it's almost if the bar of your success is like how cynical you can be. Um, I think Serena brought this up in our in our retreat for Night Hennessy. So I think, how do you think about that idea as someone who's in the space? Hmm. I think for creative work, it's much easier because I feel that if the queer girl is going to be okay is useful for like even one like young queer person, then I I feel happy. I think. Just keeping in mind, like, who my work is for, what my intentions were when creating it creatively has kept me, like, feeling very positive and even even motivated to, like, write another book. <laughs> in the academic sense, in the professional sense, that's tough. I think, you know, critique can sort of, like, 
I don't know, beat you down to build you back up in the academy. I think I found a lot of value in understanding the person giving me the critique as like someone interested in making me or my work better. I think that's like my method of of like not getting lost in the sauce of, of like mean quote unquote comments, you know, I'm like, I think they said that because they like desperately want me to be a star. (laughs) I don't know if that's, you know, idealistic or delusional, but it's, it's been my method of sustaining my sense of, of wanting to do scholarly work is everyone at Stanford loves me and wants me to be amazing. And that's why they're saying this mean stuff to me. (laughs) Yeah. So that's how I've been feeling about critique lately. Yeah, I think I might take that framing just to give myself some some solace cognitively. Of, this yeah. person wants me to succeed, even if what you say sounds like you don't. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And just the notion that, like, regardless of critique, it's it's possible to still succeed. It's mm-hmm. possible mm-hmm. to hear the critique and then progress from it. The critique is not saying, like, this is you in a negative light and this is how you will always be. It's more, here's something for you to think about. And that framing it the way that you have framed it would allow me to think of, okay, how do I move forward? Not just what am I right now, but how do I move forward? Yeah, that that reminds me of Aaron Samuels, who came to one of my classes at the business school. He's the co- co-founder of Blavity and Afrotech, and he's black and he's black and Jewish. And he did he started off with poetry, so he's a poet for like a good part of his like early career. He made this interesting point about someone giving you a note. He said like you know someone gives me a note on like a piece that I'm working on. He said I don't always take the feedback yeah as given. But I do realize, well, or maybe it's in, and he realizes that what they're communicating is something is not working. And that's what he tries to hone in on, depending on sort of how someone's giving him that feedback. And so I feel like that was a, that was like an interesting way to think about it. And to your point, Jalen, it's like, well, someone, if someone's giving you feedback, let's say on your book, but you realize something's not working for them, but then you don't care about the thing that's not working for them. You're like, all right, cool. Yeah. Like you keep <laughs> yeah. moving, right? Yeah. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't feel as like personal. There's a triage right? to that. How severe is the problem actually? Yeah. Right. I mean, don't get me to making, I'll make a decision tree. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Jalen, before we head out, two quick questions for you. This has been really great. So glad to have you here. First is got to get to some improbable facts. It's a hallmark of the community here. Improbable facts are something that everybody does in their Night Hennessy application. Mm-hmm. For me, it was the thing that took me the longest and probably that I thought the most yeah. about because it's so concise. So how did you feel about the process of of deciding on your improbable facts? And would you be willing to share one or two of them with us? Yeah, the process was fun, actually, because I think I'm a person who, unfortunately, as soon as I like accomplish something or finish something that I wanted to do, I am immediately moving on to the next thing. I'm like, yeah, that was cool. Anyway, <laughs> so having this mode of reflection was really valuable. And then also in the application, I think they suggest that you ask your friends and family. And so that was also cool to just ask my friends, like, what's something cool I've done? <laughs> uh, get feedback. Yeah. So my first one is that sophomore year of college at UT Austin, I won a drag ball judged by a famous drag queen, Monique Hart, from RuPaul's Drag Race, which I think now she goes by Mo Hart. Yeah, my best friend Sydney and I decided last minute (laughs) to participate in this drag ball on campus, which is an event where people can show off their drag art 
artistry, their drag artistry, you know, dressing up, putting on costumes, makeup, not necessarily in the way that we would associate drag with feminine impersonation, but just in, you know, extravagance and clothing and things like that. And so we both uh, did the runway uh, category. There are different categories like runway and lip syncing. And we won first and second place. And it was just kind of it was very much in our wheelhouse because whenever we were invited to go to parties during college, you know, if it was like a lingerie-themed party or like a Halloween thing, we would just do the extreme version for okay. no reason at all. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We'd be like, okay, thank God someone invited us to a Halloween party. We can start working on our costumes right. and sewing them like three weeks early. It's like mm. nobody asked us to do that. <laughs> um, and so this was just a... Uh, an actually appropriate space for us yeah, yeah, yeah. to exercise our creative um, talents. And yeah, I think that just, it's a really lovely memory I have with my best friend. He's still my best friend. He studies Russian and translation and interpretation. He's living in France right now. Oh, wow. My next one, or second one that I'll share is that famous poets often commission me to hand stitch their poems titles onto sweaters as gifts for themselves or friends. When I was in high school, I really loved this uh, poem called Heart Condition. And I like cut up some letters from a green fabric and like sewed them onto a brown sweater and, you know, kind of went crazy on Tumblr. (laughs) So uh, different people started contacting me (laughs) to uh, make sweaters like this. I just like thrifted sweaters and would like hand stitch onto them. I was not like a sewer or like anything like that. I didn't have a machine. Um, But yeah. And then I realized like, oh, these are the friends of the poets of like the poem titles that I'm doing, which is kind of wild. And then randomly I would, I would see like online people posting like poets that I loved and respected, like posting themselves wearing sweaters that I made, which is kind of bizarre. Um, yeah, a lot of that was in high school and in early college. But yeah, so it's completely random outside of anything that I do. It's just a random thing. <laughs> Another talent. Another talent. Before we go, last question. What advice do you have to anyone who's interested in being a part of Night Hennessy? I would say... Make sure that you care about the world in a very specific way and are prepared to bring that specificity to the community. I think, you know, talking to people in Night Hennessy is just always a magical experience because you you meet them and, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm taking this class. I'm so tired. My <laughs> life is like this, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, a few weeks later, they'll be, like, up presenting about how they, like, you know, started some incredible organization <laughs> to, to help people in, in, like, such a specific community or specific way. And you're like, oh, you know, you're a wonderful person in this very broad way. But then there's, like, this specific way that you are interested in creating change that I, you know, have never engaged with or thought about. And it's obviously really meaningful and and you have such a passion. And I, I think that's the common thread amongst um, people on in Night Hennessy is just like a sort of deep flowing passion <laughs> that like allows them to to overcome, you know, idealism and naivete and like the hardships and 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 just like fight for their little niche, you know? That is a beautiful description. And I yeah. think both Willie and I, like that is something that we see in you 
and what you bring to the community. So thank you for sharing that. In spades. Oh, yeah. Sure. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So look, Jalen, it's been great. So glad to have you on this episode of Imagine the World and to close this out for this calendar year, which is crazy. But so thank you so much for spending your time, your talent, your treasures with us for this, this time. Really appreciate it. Yeah. The the whole way through all from, from Wattpad to Tumblr <laughs> to YouTube to the San Francisco Public Library. I can only yes. imagine the amount of Googling that's going to be happening on the background. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go check out Jalen's book. I believe do you, ha- you have a, some book touring coming up as well, right? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm going to be holding events in Northern California, up in Oakland, in San Francisco in the new year. So you can definitely keep your eyes out for that. Been doing some stuff in Texas, Miami, New York. So I, I have a website. It's Dale. Oh, my middle name is Dale. So I go by Dale when I write. DaleWallsAuthor.com. I'll be updating everything there. My Instagram is the same. My Twitter is the same. And I post on there all the time about what I'm doing, where I'm going, virtual events, IRL events. We'll put that in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, make sure that folks can have access to that through show notes and, and the social media. So, Jalen, thank you. Thank you both. All right, that's it. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Imagine a World, where we hear from inspiring members of the KHS community who are making significant contributions in their respective fields, challenging the status quo, and pushing the boundaries of what is possible as they imagine the world they want to see. This podcast is sponsored by Knight Tennessee Scholars at Stanford University, a multidisciplinary, multicultural graduate fellowship program providing scholars with financial support to pursue graduate studies at Stanford while helping equip them to be visionary, courageous, and collaborative leaders who address complex challenges facing the world. Follow us on social media at Knight Hennessy and visit our website at kh.stanford.edu to learn more about the program and our community.